0: to communicate some important truth to a rowdy bunch of listeners, and listeners is probably a generous term, a rowdy bunch of people, right? If it's maybe uh, for teachers in the classroom, right, you've got some very important truth and all the kids are just going nuts. Uh, Maybe it's at your job and, you know, employees are just doing their jobs and all the things are happening and you've got something to communicate. And so the first thing you do is you just start talking and hope they listen, right? Uh, Of course not because then you're wasting your breath. No, we gather them around, right? Gather around, kids, gather around. You know, I've got something to communicate. We we sort of draw them in physically in hopes that we also draw them in, you know, attention-wise. Well, that's what we have actually going on here in Exodus chapter 19. God is gathering his people around, quite literally around the mountain here at Sinai. God is meeting with his newly delivered people for what will be a a foundational moment a foundational point in their history here at the mountain of sinai and that event will be the giving of god's law now we don't actually have the giving of the law yet that starts if you've if you've looked ahead that starts next week exodus chapter 20 where you get the ten commandments and then some 11 or so chapters after that where you get law after law after law but it starts here in exodus 19. now if if you're like me and you appreciate a good fast-forwarding button on your remote, you may be tempted to look at verse ni- or chapter 19 and say, well, if we're headed towards the giving of the law, Exodus 20, and the chapters that come after that, why not just skip 19? Why not just fast-forward through it? If it's really, th- we're aiming for the law, we want that great moment of the Ten Commandments, you know, Charlton Heston and the tablets, and he's throwing them on all that. If that's where we're headed, why camp out at chapter 19? Isn't it just sort of a a prelude chapter? Isn't it just sort of insignificant? Well, actually, I think it's quite important because what it does is it begins to set up this experience of the giving of the law, and it reminds us that the law of God doesn't just sort of drop out of the sky on these golden plates. Uh, You know, we saw the story of the manna from heaven, right? Every morning they go out and there's this bread thing on the ground. Well, they don't wake up one day and suddenly it's Bibles laying around on the ground. God does, the the, the law of God doesn't just sort of poof and it's there. It's given personally. On this mountain, God speaks. He speaks to Moses, who then relates that to the people. And so Exodus chapter 19, I think, is an important narrative. Because what it does is it begins to set the stage for what I think is sort of a new chapter in Yahweh's interaction with his people. Okay, he sent a message. We saw this earlier in the book of Exodus. He sends a message, I'm going to deliver you. Then he delivers them, brings them out through the the crossing of the Red Sea. He takes them through the wilderness, never mind their constant uh, bickering and complaining. But now he's drawing the people here, this mountain, so that he can begin shaping them into his people. He's bringing the people here to begin shaping them into his people. And making them his people will consist of a covenant between himself and his people and the law that will govern how they live as that set-apart people. And so 19 is beginning to set up this experience, this event, where God takes this ragtag bunch of people, a good way of saying it, after what we've seen, and he draws them to himself and he says, okay, you're going to be my people now. You're not just going to be some people who made it out of Egypt. You're going to be my people. And that's going to consist of this covenant between you and me. And as a result, I'm also going to give you this law that's going to determine how you live as my people. Because you're not going to live like everybody else. You're going to live like my people. And here in Exodus chapter 19, we have the first part of that experience. The making of this covenant. Our main idea for today, God gathers his chosen people at Mount Sinai to enter into covenant and receive his holy law. And as I just said, we don't quite get the law yet. That's coming. But Exodus 19 is setting us up for that. So God is gathering his chosen people. I'm going to emphasize that word chosen later on at Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant with them so that they can receive his holy law. So if you have your place in Exodus chapter 19, I want to encourage you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I want to read for us all of chapter 19. It's only 25 verses. And as we're reading it, I want you to... Imagine, as best you can, the scene going on here. It's very descriptive. Beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Just imagine the scene here. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we ask as we approach this text that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to understand. Help us to learn from the scriptures to receive the spiritual nourishment you have for us today. Help us to be soft-hearted to receive correction soft-hearted to receive admonition. Point us to Christ as we see ourselves in need, just like the Israelites were in need. And speak to us in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I want to begin this morning by setting the context for the next section of chapters. Sort of setting the, the groundwork. Where are we? The law of God, as I mentioned earlier, that's coming over the next 11 chapters. I'm going to get through all these laws and regulations. But prior to that, of course, God brings his people to this mountain, to the mountain of God. And so I want us to orient ourselves a little bit here in the opening verses. Here in verses 1 through 4, it's, it's a little difficult, I think, to overstate the importance of this mountain. Now, us not being Israelites and us not living in this area or this time, it may just seem like it's a mountain the same as anywhere else. But this mountain, Mount Sinai, is incredibly important for the Jewish people, both in terms of geography, certain things happen there, and also in the sense of theology, what it says, what it symbolizes about God's relationship with his people. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Let's think geographic significance. If you remember all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, Moses receives his call from the Lord. And in case you missed it back there, he was actually here at Mount Sinai. Your verses may say Horeb, another word for the same place. Moses was there. Here in Exodus 19, he's come full circle. It's the giving of the law here at Mount Sinai. Another example, 1 Kings chapter 19. I know you've got it memorized, but I'll remind you. 1 Kings 19, this is Elijah, Remember the The thing with uh, Jezebel, and she was out to get him, and so he runs away, and all these things. Well, he ends up out in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and he has this theophany, this um, presence of God manifesting before him. Important things happen here at Mount Sinai. But beyond that, Mount Sinai becomes a point of theological foundation. Let me read for you Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. The writer says, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. They're always looking back, the Israelites, to Mount Sinai as this moment where God comes and gives his law. Psalm 68, verse 7 and 8, oh God, when you went out before your people... When you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai. Mount Sinai becomes this symbol, I think, for the presence of God meeting his people. And also a symbol for this foundation of his covenant relationship. The Israelites were all about lineage and history. Mount Sinai was the place they could look and say it was there. God set us apart by giving us this law, forming this covenant. God gathers his people here at Sinai, and notice, if you will, verse 4. What's the very first thing that Yahweh does for his people? He reminds them. Did you catch that? It's gather around, children. I'm about to give you my law, but first, I want to remind you. And what does he remind them? How they got there. He reminds them, it was me who delivered you. As if they'd forgotten. I delivered you, Israelites. I brought you out of Egypt. Look what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings. You guys saw it. You saw how I executed my judgment on Egypt. Brought you out. You saw the cloud and the pillar. You saw everything. He had judged the Egyptians. He had delivered his people. But then there's this phrase right at the end of verse 4. Look, he says, "I, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you where? To myself. He says, I want you to remember what I brought you out of and the fact that I've brought you to myself. I've brought you here to be with me. Now, we've already seen... The Israelites are a bit prone to forgetfulness, a bit prone to panic when things change, and forget that only yesterday the Lord had done an amazing thing and provided for them. And so the first thing God does here, well before the giving of the law, we're not even to the Ten Commandments and all the laws about the the regulation of what you wear and the temple and all these things, we're not even there. He says, the first thing I want to do is I I want you to remember. I want you to remember where you came from. I want you to remember where you are and I want you to remember how you got here. It was me. He says, I have delivered you and I have brought you to myself. Right? I didn't bring you out into the wilderness and say, off you go. He says, He I've brought you to myself. He reminds his people of how they had gotten there. It certainly was no accident. Certainly was no effort of their own. They had been delivered and guided by the sovereign hand of the Lord. And Yahweh wants them to remember that. After this series of miraculous signs and wonders that Yahweh had demonstrated in Egypt and this remarkable escape through the Red Sea, series of grumblings in the wilderness, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And the question now is, okay, Yahweh, what will you do here? We find that in verses 5 through 8. And it seems what Yahweh has done here is he's brought his people to this mountain to form covenant with them and to set them apart let's read again verses five through eight this is our second point this morning the covenant of god verse five now therefore therefore meaning what's it therefore well he's just said all the things i've done for you having delivered you and brought you to myself now therefore verse five if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pause there for a moment. God's intention was never to deliver the Israelites and then just send them on their merry way. His intention was never to deliver them and then hope they could figure it out after that. Remember the promise. Let me read for you from Exodus chapter 6. The Lord comes, he says, therefore, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Remember, this is the promise before. It's not happened yet. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse 7 of Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Remember the promise from day one, it was, I'm going to bring you out so that you will be my people and I will be your God. God's purpose throughout the Old Testament was to call a people to himself and watch over them. We'd seen that even in Egypt, right? When we started our study in Exodus, some dark chapters, some just terrible suffering and yet one of the things we learned was God was not absent God didn't take a day off when the people were in Egypt he was there and he was present he had not forgotten his people and he delivers them precisely because they are his people he steps in to say you are my people and I will rescue you and now at Sinai God is formalizing this relationship with the Israelites through this covenant through the giving of a covenant Now, what is a covenant? Probably not a word that you and I use every day. Uh, Probably not. Uh, We might use more the term of a contract, right? If you've bought a house, if you've bought a car, we sign a contract where I I agree to do this and I agree to get this in return. Now, those of us who are married have certainly made a covenant. Maybe in your wedding vows, you actually use that term, a covenant between me and the spouse, me and my wife, a covenant. I agree to do these things. You agree to do these things, make a covenant together. God gathers his people at Sinai to enter into this covenant, which is an agreement between himself and them, and there are actually responsibilities for both sides. We saw that in verses 5 and 6 here. There's a responsibility here of what Yahweh says he will do, and then he also requires of them things that they are supposed to do. And I want to begin here with God. What is God going to do for his people? When he steps into this agreement with them, this contract, this covenant, what does he say that he's going to do for his people? Well, look at verse 5 again. Uh, if you will, we'll get to that part. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Isn't that amazing? What's God going to do for his people? He's going to treasure them. He says, because you're my people, out of everybody else in all the whole world, I'm going to treasure you especially. When God says that he'll treasure them, of course, it's not saying that they're in any way better than anyone else, right? They're certainly not more moral. I mean, they're certainly not more lovable. I mean, my goodness, we saw the grumbling already. All we need to do is continue to read the Old Testament and realize they're sinful like everybody else. So God doesn't draw them out of Egypt and make this covenant because somehow they were better off than anybody else. But he chooses to show to them a special kind of love. A special kind of love to a certain group of people. Not because they merit it, not because they deserve it, but because he is good and kind and gracious and in his plan he chooses to say I will love these people uniquely. Out of all the people in the world it will be these people that I love in this special way. Acting out of love and grace he chooses to set apart a people a people that he will love differently that he will love uniquely but these people they also have a purpose in him setting them apart look at verse 6 and you shall be to me a kingdom of what priests and a holy nation so he says okay guys i'm setting you apart here i'm going to give you special love But not to just sit there and hang out. I'm actually calling you out, setting you apart with a purpose. So that you would be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They speak for God to the world. The people of God are to be that. We're to be a witness for the Lord. God set apart his people so that they would be a witness for him. A a visible community. One of the reasons for all of the laws is so that they would look different. People walking by would say, "Man, who are those people over there that don't look like everybody else? Oh, those are the Israelites. Those are God's people. What's up with them not partaking in all the things that we do? Oh, well, that's that's God's people. God set them apart to be a witness. You think about the history of the Old Testament is through the Jews that the promises come. Through the Jews, the Messiah Christ comes. Through them is the blessing to all nations now who would look in faith to Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. These people are going to be special, they're going to be different, they're going to be set apart, and they're going to be a witness And how they live and how they speak and how they act, how they worship. I mean, you just imagine being the Israelites in a, a sea of people, everybody else around you has all their false gods and the temples and just all sorts of things going on, and you live righteously for the Lord. What a witness that is. Now, it's not all just, hey, I'm going to do this for you. What's required of the people? Well, look back at verse 5. Actually, verse 4. Let me me just read verse 4 again. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You see that? Very simple, in fact. What's required of the people? Well, obey God's voice. What does that look like? Well, that's coming in the the next chapters, right? You got the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that follow. And then keep his covenant. What does that mean? Be faithful. So Yahweh says, okay, I'm going to set you apart as my people, and I've got two requirements. One is obedience. Just do what I say. And the second one is faithfulness. Don't go running after everything else. Stay with me. The people are supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart. They're going to have these different laws. Now, how do they respond? Well, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the Israelites at this point, but given that what we've seen in the last couple of chapters, even if I didn't know the rest of the Old Testament story, I think part of me would be saying, "Uh uh-huh, we'll see right? They couldn't go a day without a snack before they grumbled, and now they're just like, absolutely, this sounds great. everything you say, Lord, we're going to do it. I mean, you take care of us, you provide for us, and we just keep some rules. Fantastic. Love it. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Really? Look at the Old Testament story, and what is it a story of? Over and over and over again, what do the people of God do? Disobey, and chase after other gods the very two things that yahweh says in my covenant what i'm requiring of you obey my commands and be faithful those are the very two things that over and over and over again the people of god don't do the story of the old testament read it through time and time again they've chased they've broken the laws and they've chased after other things i mean Not to spoil things, if you haven't read the rest of Exodus, but they don't even make it away from the mountain before they've broken these two things, right? Moses goes up for the law. He's not even back yet. And we've already got the shindig with the golden calf and we're worshiping something else. Not a great start. Now, again, not to be too hard on them, I'm going to come back to to where we find ourselves here. But they agree to this covenant. Yahweh says, I'm going to set you apart. You're going to be different. I'm going to cherish you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to provide for you in a way that's unique from everybody else. Only you will be faithful and obedient. Now the remainder of the chapter here, if you move on down a little bit, it can appear at first glance to be a little bit of, I think, a a long-winded treatment of maybe an insignificant detail. Just a bit of honesty here, you know, I look at the story and I say, okay, it's a mountain. Let's go. You know, do you know the, the illustration of how some people are pointers and some are painters? You guys, you guys know that? If you don't, then you're probably a painter. I'm just going to say that. Some people are very direct to the point. This is what it is. Let's move on. That's me. Some people are painters. Let me tell a story. Let me get all the details in. That's my wife. As you can imagine, there are some, uh, some uh, how should I say it, frustrations here and there. You know? She says, I want to tell you the story. I'm like, just give the gist. What happened? Well, here in Exodus 19, it can be a little bit like painting to me. It's sort of just over and over, extra words, and the smoke, and everybody gathers around, like, what's going on here? Well, I think if we, if we skip over, it, I think we miss the significance of the setting, I think what the writer is doing is he's trying to help us to envision the drama of the story here. This is why I said when we read it earlier, try to put yourself there and imagine God meets with His people. I mean, that should be striking enough. The presence of God descending on the mountain of the Lord. Look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever." I want us to consider in our third point this morning the presence of God, because again, remember that God doesn't mail them the law, no email. God descends, he gathers, he presents himself. But why devote so many verses here? It's a bit like if you've read some novels where it seems like they take 15 pages to describe a tree. Ever read a book like that? I tried to read the, um, the Lord of the Rings books one time. I couldn't make it. There's a little bit of that. There's over and over every adjective that you could think of for something. I'm like, just, it's a tree moving on. It's a bit like that here but again i think what the the text is trying to do with the detail is to help later generations and that's you and me get a feel for the weightiness of the moment the grandeur of the moment look again with me a little bit farther down verse 16 verse 16 imagine here you are at the foot of the mountain And this happens, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Can you imagine? It's a big mountain. It's wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Wow. Verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Do you, do you get that a little bit? Just the, the weightiness of it? The grandeur of it? The scripture here, though it may seem a bit extra detailed... I think it's trying to show us two things, probably other things as well, but two that stuck out to me. Two characteristics of God that we see here. Number one is his majesty. His majesty. God appears in this thick cloud. There's trembling. I mean, the the, the mountain itself is shaking, and somewhere there's a trumpet sound. I don't know where that came from, but the heavenly trumpet, Just the, I just envision sort of tornado siren sound. I mean, just ear piercing. And the people, what do they do? They're trembling. I would, too, because of the majesty of the Lord. Let me read for you Psalm 97, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Sounds chipper so far, but then he describes it this way. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around his lightnings light up the world the earth sees and trembles the mountains melt like wax before the lord before the lord of all the earth when yahweh's presence comes here there is this sense of majesty this isn't the you know the royals come to town in every pomp and circumstance, there is gravity here. The the, the Lord who, before him, the mountains melt like wax, has descended now on Mount Sinai. And I believe that we, myself, right at the front of the line, I think we've lost a sense of the majesty of God. Don't you? A sense of the the grandeur of God. A sense of the, the weightiness of gathering in his presence. I think just in our everyday lives, I think also in many of our church gatherings. You know, church, uh, the worship service isn't a funeral, I'm not saying it is, but it's also not a carnival. There is a weightiness, a heaviness to gathering before the Lord. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. And we've reduced God to just this small, kind of powerless, well-meaning genie who helps us out when we need it. But that's not who we find here at Sinai. We see smoke and clouds, the mountain rumbling. God is majestic, he is powerful, and he is here with his people. He is majestic. The second characteristic we see of God here is his holiness. Did you see in verse 9 and following that God sets these stipulations? He says, nobody gets to come up on the mountain. You see that? Gather up near, nobody set a foot on it. Don't touch it, don't step on it. If you do, you die. Why? Because God is holy. This is a very visible symbol of the holiness of God, what we might call the the otherness of God. He says, I am unique on this mountain. You guys don't come near. This is holy ground. You remember when Moses had his call? What did God tell him to do? Take off your shoes, Moses. This is holy ground. This is special. God is pure and righteous. And even his chosen people here cannot transgress that presence. Moses and Aaron get to go only because God has called them and invited them up. And again, I think we have largely dismissed, maybe neglected, this characteristic of God. When's the last time you thought about and considered the holiness of God? We're all about the love of God, the power of God, the provision of God, the providence and all those things. But how often do we sit before the holiness of God? The perfection, the purity, the righteousness of God. The otherness of him. Here at Sinai, God, as I said, he's setting apart his people. But he's also setting apart himself. That he is other. That he is different. He is holy and there is none like him. He is holy and he will judge sin. And this detailed description here in Exodus chapter 19, it should cause us to stand in awe. To just sit back and say, "Wow." The Lord of the universe, the holy and the righteous one, he's come to meet us on this mountain. And when he shows up, the very ground is shaking smoke and darkness get a sense of the again the weightiness of that the creator of the universe drawing near the blast of the trumpet a threat of death if you transgress his borders what an awe inspiring event an awe-inspiring sight it must have been how amazing that would have been because they saw Back in Egypt, they saw God's power in the miracles, right? The plagues and the punishments. Now they're seeing it up close, right before their eyes. That same God, that same power, now come close to them. But what about the rest of us? None of us, I don't think, has ever been to Sinai. From my research, scientists, scholars don't even know where it is. They're not even sure which mountain it is today. I've never seen the presence of God descend on a mountain. Here in Louisiana, we don't even have mountains. We've never seen his presence descend. I've never felt the ground shake under us simply because of his majesty. How do we in 2023 connect to this story that seems so distant, so unique, so miraculous? Well, if we pause for a moment and consider we'll find that there are a lot more similarities here between us and the Israelites than we might want to acknowledge at first. Like the Israelites, we as the people of God are chosen and set apart. doesn't make us better than anybody else. He's just chosen to set us apart. Like the Israelites, we have received the commands of God in his scriptures, given God's law, his commands we have been brought into covenant with god he's made a covenant with us to be our god though we have not seen the mountain quake we have certainly seen the power and the majesty of god demonstrated i think chiefly in the resurrection of jesus where do we see that in the scripture certainly and in the power that works within us but like the israelites our story is one of repeated disobedience and unfaithfulness to our covenant God. Is it not? No show of hands, but who's disobeyed the Lord this week? No show of hands, who has been unfaithful to the Lord this week? All of us. Even on our best days, we fall short of God's holy standard. God in the scriptures, he says, you should be holy as I'm holy. He doesn't say you should try your best as I'm holy, right? You see how close you can get as I'm holy? No, he says, the expectation is, I am holy, you're my people, you have to be holy. And yet, we're not holy. So what do we do? Are we doomed? Yes. Without the intervention of God, without the grace and the compassion of the Lord to do something for us, we do stand condemned. We are doomed. You see, we need someone to help us. We need someone to step in and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, that's the language Paul uses, that we can't fulfill. Now you think, well, look, I haven't fulfilled it yet, but I haven't given it my all. Can't I just try harder? Uh, no, because no amount of law-keeping will help. Do You remember our James study? There's a really pesky verse in the book of James that says, whoever breaks one commandment has broken the entire law. Do you remember that verse? I wish we could skip that one, but it's, it's there. So even those of us who think, well, you know, I've, I've done pretty good over here. I've kept these things, and sure, I broke those, but like, I've got more of these than that. James says it doesn't matter. You've broken one law, it's, you've broken them all. So if anybody in here has, can say, like, yes, I have broken one of God's commands, well, then we're all in it together at that point anyway. Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 4, for those of us who think, well, if I can just do better, if I can just keep more laws, I'll be okay, Paul teaches us that the whole point of the law was never even to be our salvation. It was never designed to be keep these laws and you'll be okay. In fact, the whole point of giving the law was actually to point out our sin and then point us to Jesus. Jesus. You see, it was Jesus who kept the law perfectly for us. You remember the Israelites back here in Exodus 19? Where do they say? uh, This was verse 8. Remember, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, history would rewrite that as, some of what the Lord has spoken, we tried. But who is it who stood before the people and said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Jesus. Who is it that receives all these commands and lives them perfectly? It's Jesus. God has provided for us exactly what we needed. Jesus kept the law perfectly, and by his grace, by God's grace, through faith, we now receive that righteousness instead of what the scripture calls our filthy rags. When we put our faith and our trust in Christ and we repent of our sin, His righteousness gets credited to our account. You see, we're we're much more like the Israelites than we might want to admit. Because like the Israelites, imagine with me, we're at the foot of the mountain, God is at the top, he speaks, he says, the standard is my holiness, and we say, sure, everything you say I'm going to do, and yet we don't and we stand condemned. stand condemned before a holy god we cannot be holy as he is holy but because he is gracious and kind he has given us his only son do you notice how have you ever heard somebody say that the old testament is basically just like god's wrath and just blasting everybody and then you get to the new testament god is loving you ever had people say that to you i think those people haven't really read the old testament because if you actually read the Old Testament, what do you see over and over? Yes, the people of God, they're sinning and they're unfaithful. But what do you see from God? Forgiveness, love, and restoration over and over and over. You see, the same God who meets at Sinai and calls his covenant people to himself knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen five minutes later when he's up on the mountain and they're making the golden cap. He knew and yet he still chose to, to call them to himself he ch- still chose to set them apart and to love them he knows the same for you and i when god calls us to salvation he knows that even on our best day we're not great even on our best days we're not a hundred percent obedient we're not a hundred percent faithful and yet he calls us to salvation through his son because he is gracious and kind he's given us his son Christ died in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. You see that image there of the smoke and the fire and God, just the magnitude and the majesty, and you think about who, who could stand? Who could stand before that? The psalmist would say, who could ascend the, the, the hill of the Lord? Who could go near? Nobody. If that's the standard. But of course, the beauty of the gospel is that God has drawn near to us. And he has come. And he has forgiven us in his son jesus death in our place satisfies the wrath of god and we get forgiveness and redemption and new life you look at exodus chapter 19 it is a prelude yes to the giving of the law but it also really just sort of levels the playing field here for all of us stand before the lord having received knowledge here of his commands and we're honest enough to look in the mirror and say boy i have failed from the get-go because the same God who is covenant has made a covenant with us has remained faithful to that look at back at verse five now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant knowing knowing they won't what does he say though you'll be my treasured possession you're going to be my treasured possession you're going to be my people God brings his people to Sinai to set them apart. We're going to get all the laws that govern how they live. It's going to make them a unique nation, different from everybody else. And his people are going to fail to keep that covenant that God makes them. They're going to fail a lot. And we also are going to fail to keep that covenant. We're just like them. We're going to repeatedly walk in disobedience and unfaithfulness. But what does Paul say in 2 Timothy, chapter 2? Remember what he says? He says, look, even when we are faithless, what does he say? He remains faithful. The God of the covenant here in Exodus 19 says, if you guys will just be this and obey and be faithful, I'll be your covenant God. Now, they don't hold up their end of the bargain. But by God's grace, he says, you guys have left time and time again. You guys have walked in disobedience. You've chased after all the other things. But you know what? I'm not giving up on you. You may be unfaithful to me, but I will not be unfaithful to you. And that is an encouragement for us today as the people of God. This week may not have been a great week for you. may not be a great year for you. You may have had a terrible morning. You're thinking, man, I, I, this is Sunday, and I've already think of the list of things that I've done and unfaithfulness or disobedience you know what? God is faithful. Even when we are not. And it's not because we try hard or we keep doing our best. It's because he is a faithful God. He is a covenant keeper. Even when we are covenant breakers, he remains faithful to us because he is our covenant God. He has called us out of darkness, Peter would say, into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. My treasured possession." Kingdom of priests, specially loved, specially called, specially provided for as my covenant people. What a, what a blessing. What a, what a joy. What a benefit. What an amazing truth. But the same God who gathers these ragtag bunch of people at the base of Mount Sinai. Today in 2023, he gathers a ragtag bunch of people here at Crosspoint. I'm right at the front of the line and we gather around to receive his scripture every Sunday. We seek to follow him, and when we fail, we know, like the Israelites, he won't fail us. He's faithful, because he's our covenant God. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are mindful of this truth here in Exodus chapter 19, that though we be faithless at times, you remain faithful. Like the Israelites, Father, we know that our obedience to you, our faithfulness, is waning at times, maybe absent at times. But because you have called us, because you have set us apart, you will remain faithful to us. And we rejoice in the scriptures. The New Testament, where you talk about, it's, you're going to present us blameless before the Father. You will hold us. You will keep us. You will preserve us until that not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we're worth saving, but because you are the covenant God who has called us. And this morning, Father, we rejoice in that fact. May we go out today encouraged and built up to know that it is Yahweh, it is Yahweh, the, his majesty and his power and his holiness. That Lord, that God is our God. We pray it in Christ's name.